1: The Axe Files,
0: with your host, David Axelrod.
2: I first met George Stephanopoulos when he was a young deputy to Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas, who was running for president. George trailed behind him thick Coke bottle glasses and an even thicker file of papers uh, under his arm. He went on to great prominence as a uh, key to that election victory and uh, top White House aide during the first term of uh, Bill Clinton, and then began a career in journalism that has taken him to the heights as uh, chief anchor for ABC News. Uh, His Sunday show is a staple for people who care about public affairs and as host of Good Morning America. George is as knowledgeable and passionate about government and politics as any journalist in the country. He's also one of the most decent and honorable people I've ever known. I sat down with him on a recent visit to New York to talk about where we are in our politics and in journalism. That conversation in a second, but one viewer note, we're going to a slim down summer schedule for the Axe Files, one a week, and we'll be back to our two-a-week schedule in the fall. George Stephanopoulos, good to see you. Welcome, welcome to my house. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you.
1: Um, it makes it easier for me. You came to me; it's great. <laughs> that's that's how we roll. Uh,
2: I wanted, uh, you know, I I thought one of the most vivid exchanges that you had on your on your Sunday show was with uh, uh, Reverend Dobson uh, of uh, the. Um, uh, what's the name? Was focus family? on the family. Well,
1: you have to remind me.
2: Well, you uh, you questioned him on the morality of a position he was taking, and he said, "Are you going to lecture me on no. uh, on morality?" And I and there was a hint of you being sort of a religious and and uh, it's the reason it struck me so is because I know you and I mm-hmm. know your history and uh, you grew up in a very.
1: Uh, faith-driven household oh, that's for sure son grandson nephew godson of uh, greek orthodox priests yeah i mean uh, it had been i used to joke my family business until i sort of broke uh, broke the string went bad and went into, into politics um uh, but yeah uh, my my grandfather on my father's side came here i guess in 1936 and was basically the uh, greek orthodox priest for the entire west he went straight out to great falls montana and covered that whole territory um there that was a time when greeks were greeks that there'd been about two or three waves of immigration but that was one of them obviously right before uh world war ii they that the family gradually made its way east and um my dad was born in greece but he grew up in both ohio and pennsylvania my grandfather had parishes there and in fact my dad ended up serving for a Uh, 20 years i mean uh several years eight years in the cleveland parish which is right adjacent to the one where my grandfather had served and so uh
2: this was a a presence a pervasive thing in your and, uh, and
1: how and how how did that impact on you it was what I knew. I mean, and I, so I always felt like I was living in because I'm sort of a first and a half generation Greek. My, as I said, my dad was born uh, in Greece. My mom was born here, but she was also the daughter of immigrants who had come here. Um, her father came here around 1918. Uh, worked on the um, worked on the railroads. Worked his way out west all the way to Utah. Made it back to East Minnesota, settled in Rochester, Minnesota, and opened up a, a shoe repair shop uh-huh. on Main Street in Rochester. So my parents were really hardcore first generation uh, Greeks. Where you're really brought up, and that is you're you're Greek American. I was kind of American Greek, mm-hmm. but still living in that world where uh, you know sort of the whole rhythms of my life were set to the church our calendar was set to the church that was our our community um yet i would also you know sort of go out into the world public school and you, you're exposed to something else so i really felt like i had um my foot in in two very different worlds when i was growing up
2: did you ever consider going into oh the sure
1: yeah i mean i thought that's what i assumed i would be uh i guess up until around i was i guess 14 um, when it when it sort of hit me that I wasn't going to be a priest, and I wouldn't didn't say anything about it for a few years because I, I kind of felt uh, betrayal is a slightly too strong a word, but it had been uh, the expectation that I had grown up with, whether it was put on me or not. It just what I assumed, and then when I realized uh, that that wasn't the path I was going to follow, I felt I guess almost a. Embarrassed or abashed about coming out and talking about it, and that turned out, my my parents were great about it. It was something much more that I was feeling than something that was being imposed on me. But yeah, that's what I assumed I was going to do.
2: Now there are some who would say that you've made the journey from the sacred to
1: the profane. yeah it went as bad as I could go. Right. <laughs> yeah. So
2: so how did your interest in politics grow? Up? Well,
1: it was that was something also. I think we grew up with not so much partisan politics as my, but you know I grew up in a house where my parents read the newspapers and watched the news on television and talked about what was going on. And that was something uh, that was always part of our lives. I didn't get a full spark. I wasn't like the kind of kid in grade school or high school. Like I have friends, let's see, I was um, 12 the summer of the Watergate hearings. I have to commit, that wasn't a big part of my life at, at 12. I had a lot of friends my age who that they were really into it then. For me at that point, stage of my life i was you know caddying and hanging out with my friends and you know going to the pool in the summer pretty normal and but it sort of hit me much more i would say um in college i had some great professors and and uh i actually remember my first political job it was a freshman in at columbia and i i uh put out signs at the subway for carter burden who I think was running for Congress at the time. He was on the city council, was running for Congress uh, at the time. And I got much more involved over the course of college. And then for me, the real turning point um, was my junior year of college. I had been taking more political science classes. I'd been caring about it a lot more. Um, And I uh, had an internship with my local congresswoman. They called it the LBJ internship at that time. I think it was $500 a month for June in the summer and that was the summer of 1981 uh the reagan tax cuts were um uh, going through the congress and she mary rose okra was a member of congress oh so yes local remember? in cleveland local in cleveland yeah. she was you know standing on the front lines uh, fighting social security cuts and i think i wrote my first statement for the congressional record and i was hooked for life And do you – was
2: there any uh, connection between, uh, you know, faith and sort of the tenets of faith that that, that led you?
1: The idea that you have responsibility for the world beyond yourself Uh, and, you know, the – for me, you know, the the, the basic idea that – we have to love one another as we love ourselves, and that you carry that simple idea through. I think to public policy, and in, at some level, putting other people even not fully before yourself, but certainly on an equal on an equal plane. And and I, I think you can sort of derive principles of a lot of public policy. Now you're always going to disagree on the details of how to achieve that, but um, the basic. I think the basic driving philosophy for me, political philosophy for me, comes from that.
2: How'd your folks uh, take it when you veered into the political direction?
1: Uh, I think they were they were two minds at first. Uh, they, I think my parents have actually gotten more liberal, more democratic over time. But um, at first, it wasn't about the partisanship. It was like. Like a lot of first-generation families, the idea is that again, if I wasn't going to be a priest, mm-hmm. be uh, a lawyer, you got it, yeah. <laughs> or a doctor. I, w- right. I was never going to be a doctor, so that wasn't <laughs> yeah. going to happen. Cards. But you had to, you had to sort of have that professional mm-hmm. credential, and that was the next uh, period of my life where I spent a few years. Um, kind of, not dissembling, but not not talking too much about what exactly I wanted to do. I took that first internship junior year, and then it came to be senior year of college, and um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I went to pass again then. I applied to the Peace Corps, but also applied for some internships again in Washington. And uh, kind of at the last minute, I got one at the Carnegie Endowment, and I ended up taking that, and I said to my parents, I had already taken the LSATs, let me just do this for a year. And then that was an, an election year, in 1982. Another member of Congress from Cleveland got elected, a guy named Ed Fian. Yes, you might have remembered him.
2: Yes, yeah, I remember him not just from his service in Congress, but from for, this Titanic race with Dennis Kucinich for the mayor of boy Cleveland. Mayor. Yeah, they were 27 and 28
1: years old. Did you probably cover it? I don't know, yeah, know.
2: yeah, no, I did, I did. I was at the Tribune, and yeah, they sent me to cover that. Because that was a
1: big deal at the time. It yeah. was these two two young men under 30. Did you work in that race? No. I mean, I, that would have been 1977. I was 16 again. That was, uh-huh. No, that was before I had a real uh-huh. political waking, but I remembered it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he lost to Dennis Kucinich, but then ended up uh, in Congress. And um, it was the same thing. My internship was running out in December. I could have gone on to uh, law school, I guess, in that September, but I didn't – wasn't – quite ready yet still hadn't scratched the itch completely and i, I met it now have you
2: completely ruled that out law school yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know the truth i mean uh, this is getting us off, off on another tangent one of the things i like best about the you know the career i've been lucky enough to have both working in congress working in campaigns working in the white house and then at abc i've I've gotten to deal with the best parts of the law and without all the drudgery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean all the all the big constitutional big public policy yeah. issues. We study them all the time. We talk about them all the time and I've learned a lot about them but yes. without um, without becoming a lawyer. Um, so you stay with Fian for uh well what I did with, years, with right? I I worked for him let's see that was 80 uh, he started in 83 um Yeah, and then in the fall of 83, I kept wanting to put it off again. So um, I told my parents, let me take uh, one more shot because it would buy me another year. Apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. I had applied in college and didn't get it. Um, And, uh, you know, this was a thing where so much of that hinges on your interviews. And working for two years had made a big difference. And uh, right when that job was about to end, I got the – the road. So I went to England for a couple years and that pretty much put law school mm-hmm. to bed, but I had a, a nice credential. nice, cons- and yeah, nice yeah, consolation right. for your folks too. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's what happened. And then, then after that one thing led to another.
2: Yeah. Well, one, one thing it led to was you working for Mike Dukakis when he ran for president. How, how did that come? Obviously there, there was an attraction there, a the Greek American running Greek guy for president. I no sense
1: of humor is my old joke, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got a pretty good one. Um, It was a haphazard thing. Um, I had a great experience at Oxford where actually when I came back, um, it was the first time I had uh, tried to go go full-time into television journalism. Because um, when I was at Oxford, I had taken, the, you know, you go there and you, it's, a, it's a great schedule. You go to school for eight weeks and then you're off for six, three times a year. Yeah, that's nice. And in my first two long breaks, uh, at the time there was a famine in Sudan. And I took my first break and uh, volunteered with the International Rescue Committee and, and saved the children and was doing some work there, but also did my first journalism. Hmm. Um, I was a, a stringer for the Christian Science Monitor. I wrote two articles on the famine, and it's such a like mind-bogglingly different world. Um, I would handwrite the articles, and I think I called them in mm-hmm. to like some one eight hundred number from a phone booth in Khartoum. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, then it got. But I, I, I remember that was my, the. That thrill which you lived with early mm-hmm. in your career as well—the first time you see your byline—oh yeah—on uh, something that you really cared about, yeah. and you felt like you're telling the world. Yeah, I about, also felt
2: uh, when I was a reporter that actually calling stories in was an exhilarating thing. Yeah, sometimes on deadline, you know, uh, just the uh, the rush of yeah, the having to tell the story, it. <laughs> tell it quickly, tell it correctly was yeah. It's
1: you know. and at that time, I actually then got hooked up with. Um, at the time, a, a small there was a small uh, CBS documentary running on Sunday mornings. Then, and I had met a, an, another former uh, student at Oxford when I came back and told him about my trip, and we ended up going back for my, on my next break, and we filmed these two two shows. And it turned out that we were there at that time uh, while we were there filming these documentaries on the famine. Um, there was a coup. And so I ended up doing more journalism huh. for the for the Christian Science Monitor then, and so I thought came out of that thinking point maybe I want to do this you know, and uh, I still I ended up teasing both Rick Kaplan and Ted Koppel about this for many years afterwards. One of the places I applied when I came back from Oxford was Nightline, and I got a very uh, I got a reply. It was one sentence basically saying we have no. <laughs> No use for you, so I went back to Ed Fien and uh, was his chief of staff for about a year and a half. And but I did want to get involved in a campaign, and the attraction to uh, Mike Dukakis was was you know very strong. Greek American, first Greek American had a real shot. Uh, Agnew kind of didn't count. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, I, I you probably know him. I'm sure you know him. Nick Metropolis, yeah, sure. was was my connection. That campaign, and I ended up doing a bunch of jobs at the beginning. I went up to Concord during the New Hampshire primary, um, just, and then was full time as the communications director for the Ohio primary, where Jesse Jackson was still a factor uh, then. And then I went to Boston in um, in June uh, when. You know, everybody was just measuring their office for their drapes for the office in the White House. Well, famously, Dukakis was 17 17 points points ahead at the the convention. Um, Boy, but I I, again, this is how much the world has changed. I was part of the rapid response. Unit for uh, you you guys can see the that's like being on the the Jamaican uh, (laughs) bobsled team. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) right. We were so pathetic, and you know, again, the old time our the way we would get the news was literally an old time AP ticker in the corner of the office. Uh, the first days of our research was sort of LexisNexis. Um, god, I'm making myself feel so old here, but yeah, um, but that. That August, we got decimated, and you could feel it happening. But, um, you know, coming off the high of the convention, but, you know, Dukakis had this thing where he, it was a little old-fashioned. And he, to his, you know, to his credit and his detriment, he believed that he's a hyper-rational man, yeah. hyper-principled person, who believes that that's sort of the way everybody else <laughs> is or should be, right. too. And he couldn't believe that the attacks that they started to launch um, starting with even sending Ronald Reagan out to kind of kick off the idea that he was quote invalid and setting up rumors about his mental health problems, but then going on to the Boston Harbor and the Willie Horton, right? And you know the, the defense stuff was just by the end of uh, August we were in so much trouble.
2: W- we should note it was Roger Ailes who uh, was the mastermind had, behind uh, yeah. that campaign, and to this day I think it probably was the most effective negative campaign in a presidential race S-
1: six weeks completely turned everything around yeah i mean by the people still talk about the the uh and you know now i know better i mean i think i felt like boy we were still ended in october when i look back at it we weren't mm-hmm. um, okay. uh,
2: although what happened in the debate probably the debate, strengthened a it, negative impression
1: yeah it sort of re- i think mm-hmm. you could argue that Dukakis had a chance in the debates to come back yeah. But you know, We should remind is, those who yeah. don't
2: remember or know that uh, he got a question on what he would do. He was opposed to the death penalty. got a question on what he would do if his wife had been raped and murdered. Would he support the death penalty for that person? And he just
1: gave this very deadpan uh, answer why he's opposed to the death penalty, as opposed to any emotion yeah. on what it would feel like if someone – he killed his wife or hurt his wife, and it just so after
2: this Willie Horton campaign, it just reinforced a negative that uh, was uh, was deadly. Did you know Dukakis? Did you get to know him during that campaign?
1: A little bit. I didn't travel though, and so I mean, I would see him a lot, and I admire him still. I mean, yeah. I was that actually at a? He was a fine governor. Fine governor. I I to this day, I mean, I'm, I I still regret um, that during the Clinton administration. Uh, we didn't find a place for him in the cabinet. I think he would have been an you know, excellent secretary of health and human services, transportation, HUD, anything. He's in, he's in, he's dedicated his life to public policy and public service, and he's just been tremendous at it. He's been teaching ever since. Kind of he left. odd
2: because Bill Clinton gave the nominating speech for well, Mike, famously. Famously, when, I think it's he's still <laughs> he's still talking now. It went on for quite a and while.
1: You look at the, that's one of the things you think about Bill Clinton. Though, how many times has he been? introduced uh dismissed and then come back <laughs> yeah
2: yeah in fact he was really innovative then he i think he went on the tonight show The tonight show and With after, johnny carson Yeah, and he, he and he made fun of himself yeah. for the for the length and now of that his... just
1: becomes standard operating procedure
2: yeah yeah um so uh talk about bill clinton uh you uh you, you went to work for Dick Gephardt, for, I, who actually was turned out to be Dukakis's principal opponent in that primary in, in, in 88. In, in,
1: in 88. And yeah, I actually, that was one of the other points in my life where I thought I was leaving uh, politics. I actually first, uh, after the campaign, I um, boy, I really did the circuit. but I first interviewed <laughs> with uh, both Al Gore and Joe Biden, uh, coming out to join their their Senate offices. Um, neither one worked out, but I had, at the same time, I had known Father Timothy Healy, who was the president of Georgetown, who was becoming the president of New York Public Library. And uh, he was moving up here, and he asked me to be his uh, chief of staff executive assistant. And that sounded like a pretty interesting yeah. opportunity as well. I did that. Um, but, uh, again, I wasn't done. And that spring, I guess it was the spring of – late spring of 1989 – uh, there, there was a wholesale um, replacement of the entire Democratic leadership. Jim Wright, uh, Bill Gray, both left, and Dick Gephardt became the, the Democratic leader. And through um, a, a, another uh, great political operator fixer, Kirk O'Donnell, who I worked yeah. with in the in the Dukakis campaign, he hooked me up with and Gephardt. Um, To uh, as he was majority leader for an interview on uh, becoming his floor, his chief floor staff, which I've had a you know knock on. I'm so grateful. I've had a lot of great jobs in my life. In some ways, that was one of my favorite jobs. Yeah,
2: talk about being right in the middle of the action. You're
1: right in the middle of the action, and there's it's, it's 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 politics on every single level. You have to know the personalities, the personalities of every. member of the democratic caucus and some republicans as well and what moves them you have to know the issues and you have to know the politics and it was just great great training and you're there on the floor every single day talking to members of congress and being in the strategy meetings with the speaker on how you're going to approach uh, the new white house and it was just a it was an incredible education an incredible thrill and and really fun
2: we're going to take a short break we'll be right back with george stephanopoulos You arrived there not just after a period of time when there was a, a shakeup in the Democratic leadership, but shortly there'd be a shakeup in the Republican leadership. Newt Gingrich uh, affected the essentially the purge of uh, Bob Michael, who was a moderate Republican and from I Illinois. Remember,
1: I remember what precipitated it all. I was in the middle of that as well. That was at the time when um, one of the things that elected George H.W. Bush, thanks to Roger Ailes, was the promise of, you you read my lips, no new taxes. Right. Uh, by uh, 1990, that promise was untenable. Um, to
2: untenable his, because of the, na- the, the budget was so... Yeah, I mean, of I, actually,
1: again, this shows how much things have changed. Untenable because it just seemed like the responsible thing to do at the time. I mean, today, I don't think the leaders would find it <laughs> untenable. Uh, but at that time, they, they did, uh, or he did um and uh george mitchell was the lead democratic leader in the senate, in the senate. Yeah. we had tom foley the speaker and dick Gephardt were the leaders and, and they came up with a strategy that um the democrats would not negotiate until bush explicitly said you know that promise is no longer viable we're gonna have to raise taxes and uh you saw the beginnings of, of so much of what's happened politically to date right in that in that event. Uh, John Sununu was his chief of staff at the time, was Bush's chief of staff, and he knew how much trouble it was going to be. Um, and even though they had another guy, Dick Darman, who was their OMB director, pushing them to, yeah, you have to do the responsible thing and raise the taxes. Sununu didn't want to do it, but they finally agreed, because the Democrats wouldn't talk unless they did, and but the only way they would do it was to put up a, a press release, tack it up to the wall, of the White House, and it, it, as if that was going to hide what they had done, and it exploded. Um, but that's pretty much how
2: they make announcements at the White House, today, <laughs> right? Exactly.
1: But, um, but they, what happened was there was a budget summit at Andrews Air Force Base for something like thirty days, and uh, you knew from, and I still have this image. I'm seeing it in my head. Right now of Newt Gingrich, you know, you had Sununu and Darman and the uh, for for the White House. Newt was then, uh, I guess, the number two or three in the House Republican leadership. And you could tell in all those meetings, he would be reading these um, sort of uh, pulp crime novels (laughs) through the meetings and have a big stack of books and papers. And you just knew. He so was going to be this, against this thing.
2: Novels, he got the idea to stick the knife in Bob Michael's well, back. Well, and that's huh? what happened. They've yeah.
1: written, they Bob Michael and the White House reached an agreement, and Newt Gingrich led a revolt, voted it down the first time.
2: How much um, do you think the – you say a lot of what we're seeing today goes back to then. I sort of you know give Gingrich credit for sort of launching this sort of polarity in our politics, for really – Kind of, especially when it comes to, to lack of comedy in, you know, it goes Congress. back
1: further than that. Though it goes back to, um, goes back to my first job with Ed Feen. Uh, Ed Feen, when he first got elected, was a part of a group of about twelve or thirteen members of Congress who went to El Salvador in um, December, I guess, of eighty-two, January of eighty-three, but it was even before they were sworn in. And it was in talking about that trip and those members. That Newt uh, started the um, practice of speaking to an empty chamber. Yes. Uh, and he did, and he was basically attacking these members as being disloyal and, you know, an American and socialist and all that. But acting as These would be
2: televised on Yeah, but, C-SPAN. Act,
1: but then, this is before, you know, people learned how to respond to it, um, you had the feeling that he was saying it to their face. And they weren't responding. But it was really to an empty chamber. Yeah. And what ended up happening was, I guess it was O'Neill, who, finally, who then had to start the practice of turning the cameras around <laughs> during these <laughs> speeches so that you could see when it was an empty chamber and when it wasn't. But it goes back to it was the very beginning. Interesting,
2: yeah. So um, talk about your uh, first encounter with uh, Bill Clinton and how you... Yeah, that's up, fl- but- that's
1: forwarding to a couple of years later, 91. When I w- was hired by Dick Eppard, it was an amazing job. But I think I was hired because he was planning on running for president yeah. um, and you know, was trying to building a, 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 the beginnings of a campaign team. And uh, you go back to that time, though, January of 1991, coming out of the first desert storm. George Bush was at 90, 91 percent right. approval. And you had this series of top Democrats from Dick Gephardt to Al Gore to Mario Bill Bradley. Cuomo. Well, Cuomo held on a little. Yeah, the first right. he was out and then he then he came back in, um, who just all said no to the race. I mean, everyone who was expected to run decided to take a pass, including Gephardt. Um, but I really, you know, I was at that... I felt like I was at another point in my life where I sort of had to make a, a choice. Um, even though I loved working in the House, I didn't think I wanted to do that my entire career. And if I didn't go and do something else, I felt I would kind of become a lifer. Become a lifer. Um, and I really did, after the Dukakis experience, want to work in at least one more presidential campaign. Gephardt said no. Uh, but through mutual friends, Mark Guerin and uh, Stan Greenberg, I was introduced to Clinton. I actually met him in Greenberg's office uh, in September of 1991, uh, interestingly, I I actually interviewed with both Bill Clinton and Bob Kerry on the same day. Um, and I was attracted to both of them for very different reasons. I mean, Bob Kerry is, you know, this war hero, uh, kind of an existential Bobby Kennedy type uh, politician and taking the strong stand against flag burning, you know, the, the flag burning yeah. amendment. Um, and I met with him and I had a great meeting with him and Billy Shore. But um, didn't come away with the strong sense that he had thought through the whole campaign or knew how he was going to get from here to there. Completely different experience with, uh, with Clinton. Um, met him in, uh, in Stan's office. Um, he asked me what I did for Dukakis, and I told him, you know, they tested the jokes off me in rapid response, and he laughed and— um, but then really, and this is the, the interview was m- mostly me, him telling me how the primaries were going to go <laughs> and saying basically something that turned out to be very true. He said, we're going to know on the day of the Illinois primary. And I think that's the day I'm going to wrap it up, which turned out uh, to be true. Yeah. Um, and I was just dazzled by how much he knew about everything having to do was running for president, he knew why he was running. He knew the policies that would uh, that would fuel his vision, and he knew the politics.
2: cold. he had been the chairman of the uh, Democratic Leadership Council. Council, yeah, and <clears throat> developing kind of an alternative Democratic vision uh, in uh, opposition to, or as an alternative to what was sort of traditional Democratic. Dogma. Yeah, and, in
1: fa- and and I was de- just, you know, I was more in the sort of traditional liberal uh, wing of the party, but recognized um, that that was necessary. And also, uh, you know, this is, again, part of Clinton's political genius. He knew, again, it partly from how much he knew about the policy, but he knew how to speak to every side of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party and how to you know, I think further progressive principles in a way that that people who might generally be opposed to it could accept. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, part of what he could do so well.
2: Yeah, I mean, he, I, mean I met with him in, a, in about the same time frame and, um, you know, came away as you were r- really impressed by both his grasp of politics and his grasp of policy. That was the thing. And, uh to be able to combine those two things. I mean, he under, he has a county-by-county county understanding of the politics of this country. And I think part of it is being governor of a small southern state where, you know, retail politics was and, the and coin a, of the realm.
1: And a tireless student of it for his entire life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No no, no doubt about it. Uh so you signed on. I think that's when I met you. Uh, you yeah, came we, through Chicago. Chi- it was the day the that, Navy that Pier. We went to the Navy Pier. To name David Wilhelm as a campaign it's, manager. Uh, that was in
1: late October. I had started in uh, the beginning of the month, and um, boy, it was just such a day, again a different time. I went down to Little Rock. The headquarters was a paint store, two rooms, <laughs> from a presidential yeah. <laughs> campaign. It's when I first met your mayor, Rahm Emanuel. He started about. A month after I uh, started, I have this image of him standing on top of a table, ordering people yeah. ar- around, um, and he made a, a huge difference as well because he was the fundraiser, and he had made sure he Clinton had just enough of a steak
2: Well, you, to get uh, by. you, yeah, because you had a rocky run, run there. I mean, there were people who had written. Clinton out of the Well, it actually, he had a
1: great October, November, December. And part of him, we, when we saw you, he was, yeah. he was kind of on a roll and people were seeing how special he was. And Ron was raising, at the time, what seemed like.
2: I think he raised $4 million and everybody
1: uh, was. This is like amazed. the biggest thing in the world. Lunch even Yeah, nothing today. Um, but then January was just as tough as it gets. Jennifer Flowers. Jennifer Flowers, the draft, yeah. uh, at least two or three draft stories. I mean, we're it just About uh, Clinton
2: trying to avert the draft. Avert the
1: draft, yeah. Um,
2: and it seemed like, like a mortal yeah. politician would have died in those months. And you Yeah, know,
1: the, I mean, again, everything has been sort of turbocharged in the modern era. Um, but the things he survived then, no one had survived.
2: Yeah. Before.
1: And yeah. it was part, partly just his his will. Um, it was you know, in fairness, I mean, you, you brought up Mario Cuomo. Um, he actually flirted with coming back into the race uh, in December, and um, to the point where he had actually had a plane waiting yeah. on the tarmac to fly right. to New Hampshire. And I'm sitting down in my office in Little Rock, and I think Clinton was about to get off a plane and I think it was Tennessee. It might have been Kentucky. And you know, we were preparing for what to do if Cuomo indeed got in. And um at the time we were all acting like, Oh yeah, it's a good thing if he gets in, we'll we'll take him on. But uh sure enough, just before Clinton got off the plane, uh, we got we got word that Cuomo had decided not to get in. So I said, Go you know, don't go make the statement. <laughs> <laughs> a whole different thing. <laughs> and he just outlived a gracious statement and it was it was fine, but so, of so Cuomo's virtues
2: relief. became more apparent in the intervening minutes. There, oh yeah, <laughs> before. The Although they ended qu- up went. having a
1: very complicated relationship yeah. for the next several years. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I actually had conversations with Cuomo uh, about that, but um, that campaign was a turbulent.
1: Oh my uh, God!
2: Turbulent ride. We
1: were. It was. It was life support uh, from for all of January and February. But then uh, he would not give up. And in that last week of the New Hampshire primary, he simply uh, didn't sleep. And even though after those two stories, Jennifer and the draft, he had he had fallen at times to th- you know third uh, place. He um, ended up not winning. People forget. Yeah, yeah that. He came in, <laughs> in <second. laughs> he came in second to Paul Soglin, who of course was sort of a native uh, son, but it was such a surprising. Uh, recovery. He I mean, labeled himself the comeback kid, and it worked. I mean, that was always a, a credit where credit is due. That is a joint um, creation of, of Manny Grunwald and Paul Begala. <laughs> um, and he went down south and uh, was able to, you know, win in win in Georgia and just then keep rolling along. And ended up, you know, took took out in the south and carry hang on hung on for a little longer, but. Sure enough, at the Illinois primary, he had become the nominee. But even then, by the time uh, he wins Illinois, we're looking at a general election where he was polling in third place.
2: Behind Ross Perot and George Bush. And George Bush,
1: yeah. You know, that was when Perot had, had decided to run. Now, per, Bush had had his own kind of rocky primary in New Hampshire with Pat Cannon for the first time. But, um, or oh, wait, was that in. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was he, got, yeah. He, he lost it in, 90, in 96. Dole actually lost to Buchanan. But, um,
2: but but Buchanan gave him a hard time. Gave him a very hard time. Yeah, yeah and then insinuated his way onto the stage at the convention. Which, which was
1: a great day for, for, for
2: us. For you guys. Uh, uh, one last thing on this because I want to move on to the White House. Um you were part of the worst rapid response effort <laughs> in presidential history, <laughs> and you may have been part of the best. Yeah, uh, one of the best in that campaign. How much of your experience from '88 informed? I know you had James Carville. Uh, I mean, but with, yeah, and, the, and, the and Those thing guys.
1: Was, yeah, just if you learned one thing from then, which is something I ended up having to unlearn in the White House, and I think people have had to unlearn even more today. But the, the, the driving philosophy uh, of, of our rapid response was nothing goes unanswered. Nothing. Um, and you're, you're fighting it out literally every minute of every day. Now then…
2: It was a little easier then because you didn't have the… We had
1: three news cycles, right. maybe. You were going from a one or two news cycle day to maybe three. And we did have some people work all night, but well, there's no internet. Um, you're, the basic rhythms were still driven by the evening news and the, and the deadlines… For the for the papers, um, and and the morning news to a to a degree, but not as much as it is uh, today. But it's completely different from what what people f- face now, which is, it gets to my point of. I think part of what you guys had to deal with in the uh, Obama campaign, and people have to deal with even more now, is learning what not to respond to. Yeah, learning well, what uh, is noise. it's easy yeah. to chase rabbits down. Yeah, the that's hole. the that and and, and you, you don't want to be doing that all the time but we felt and then at the time it felt new that that's exactly what we had to do and it was right for the time
2: yeah yeah and and there was plenty to respond to Clinton was quite uh, <laughs> a target then you went to the White House and you you wrote a, a very compelling book about this called all too human it and in reading the book it, it was at, it was a mixed experience at best I mean the White House I can attest to is an incredible place to you learn more
1: every minute i mean i always say that and i'm sure you you felt the same way um you, <laughs> you never feel smarter than when you're in the white house because you have all
0: now, the all information the, of the world right
1: at your fingertips you could call anybody you could call anybody at any time you're generally surrounded by the smartest eight or ten people around a table this size yes that you're ever going to be working with um, and in, in, including in both our cases, I think the presidents uh, yeah. we worked with, um, and you're it. Ma- and it, it, every decision matters. So yeah. you're you're playing at your highest level, but they, a lot of stress <laughs> comes yeah. with that as well.
2: Yeah, uh, and you wrote about that. Um, talk about that. The stress well, that came with the experience. And
1: part of it was the job. I had, um, you know, I was a, at first I was communications director and, and was doing the briefings, uh, moved on to what more of the role that I had in the campaign of being you know, sort of the senior policy and strategic advisor. But for Bill Clinton, a lot of that was and a lot of my particular role was damage control, was on on, on, on all of the tough stories and many of them self-inflicted, uh, and which meant that I was, in my own mind, often fighting two or three front wars, you know, uh, trying to uh, answer these stories in public, um, but dealing with many times not knowing all the facts, even after asking many times, not being entirely clear on uh, what was really going on behind the scenes and dealing with, you know, and I get it, uh, a president or first lady who... Resented the fact that they had to answer a lot of the questions that they were getting posed, uh, that were being posed to them every day, um, and that that, did, that created you know a fair amount of stress. Did you do you
2: you know listening to you, and it probably occurs to you, uh, you I you could I could be talking to Sean Spicer.
1: I I I was in I've been in the White House a few times this spring, uh, and uh, I, I guess it was in. May and it was I guess a week or two before Memorial Day was the last time and I was in Sean's office I said hey you're you're going to last in the briefings longer than I did Yeah, <laughs> turned out he didn't I mean that was the next day or that night uh, in fact when I was flying back uh, from the White House was when uh, they put out the word that Comey had been fired which I think you know sort of so much has changed or just intensified uh, since then um, but yeah, and I've talked to Sean about this, the differences, I mean, yeah. And I had to deal with my own in the first briefings, you know, Hillary Clinton wanted to close the press office door to the, the working press between the, the West wing and the press so office. And that was, around. and that was a big controversy at the time. Um, we went back and forth on televising the briefings, So that controversy is not mm-hmm. new at all. The difference is, um, and I know that a lot of people who listen don't accept this, but there's a difference between advocacy and spin and lying. And there is, uh, and I think that um, the in this White House, uh, the president's spokespeople have been put, and they've put themselves there too, but have been put in untenable positions, you know, for Sean from the first day, yeah. trying to make this argument that about the crowd about the crowd. And then a day later, or three days later, trying to make the argument about how uh, President Trump would have won, but for the illegal votes in uh, you know the popular vote, but for illegal votes, and then later the, the tweet about Obama and bugging the, uh, the, the bugging him. Yeah. I mean, they've had a series of things which are just flat out untrue, and yet therefore they they go out and either repeat them or refuse to you know, correct them or refuse to get an answer from the president, you know, the tapes for 40-something, yeah. 40, 40 that's different. That's an entirely different, uh, has an entirely different quality to it.
2: We're going to take another short break. We'll be right back with, with George Stephanopoulos. At the end of your tenure at the White House, you guys lost the midterm elections. There were a lot of recriminations. The aforementioned David Wilhelm, a friend of both of ours, was chairman of the Democratic Party and was uh, summarily dispatched. Said he was going back to Chicago where at least they stab you in the front, (laughs) which I always thought was a great line. Uh, And and you had your own challenges in the White House because
1: the president had lost confidence in his team. Right, and, had a, and it had a secret team that became less secret, a guy named Dick Morris, his old political consultant, who not only um, was consulting in secret for a long time, but also was at odds with a lot of the, the principles that President Clinton had, had run on. Um, he wanted to move Clinton to the right.
2: Dick, yeah, Morris, beyond Dick the center. Morris was uh, very uh, promiscuous in his... Yeah, and uh, about as and about as amoral
1: a guy as you could ever. He had worked for Jesse Helms. He had, right. he
2: had he had spanned the gamut,
1: <laughs> and Trent. Lock. And he had
2: started off as on, here on the Upper West Side of New York, yep. working for
1: progressives. Right, he had been been all over the map, and now he's you know, I, I'm not o- sure exactly off what the he's edge doing. Of the but earth. Yeah, yeah. the way 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 uh, right wing, white right right wing. Um, but you know, there was a real after the midterms. I stayed, but there was a real existential struggle inside the White House for the direction of uh, uh, of the presidency, for the things we believed in. Ended up in a titanic battle with uh, the Republican, then-Republican Congress over the budget. Um, and, you know, Clinton ended up, I give him credit for this, uh, in retrospect, it was a tough, tough fight. Um, I have to say, though, it felt that was one of the more energizing times at the White House, because you felt... Even though sometimes it was against people (laughs) inside your White House, you felt like you were fighting for stuff that really, Mm -hmm. really mattered. You know, the first—
2: During the government shutdown. Government
1: shutdown and these huge cuts in Medicaid, that's back right now. You know, one of the ironies, when I think about it, one of the big fights is whether or not you were going to propose a budget that would reach balance. And um, at the time, Newt Gingrich, Dick Armey, all the Republicans were insisting on a budget that reached balance according to the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, <laughs> not yeah. the OMB. And now, of course, the, the Congressional Budget Office. Is in can't disrepute trust them all, among the... Uh, even though they're, it's run by a, a conservative Republican. Um, but, yeah, that was a big, big fight. Um, and, you know, then at the time, there we were still battling these stories. You know, you had... Uh, Paula Jones was filing a lawsuit against the president. There were stories, still stories being, uh, it would be all over Breitbart if this were today, but um, about some of his troopers in Arkansas saying that they had helped him Mm -hmm. get women as well. Things he was all denying, but which started to plant the seeds of um, future issues, future problems. Because at the time, they had appointed a...
2: Special, you were for that.
1: You 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 were. You had
2: advised. You had advised. Am I wrong about this? That you had advised that the special counsel was inevitable, well, so they yeah, might the, as well yeah, get in front of it well, and say it was, it and was, invite it, was, it to ha- happen.
1: I, I, I always, this whole debate, and the Clintons still disagree with me on this. Bernie Nussbaum disagrees with me on this. He's a the, White House counsel. Yeah, the idea that this was a choice is. It's fanciful. It's just not true. <laughs> you know? It was going to be forced on. It was them. if if it, it was whether you were going to ask for it before the five Democrats on the Judiciary Committee who would make the difference. Maybe it was four at the time. Would were going to request it anyway, and then it just happens to so you. So your
2: advice was don't look like you're resisting it because it'll look well, like it was you're-
1: two pieces of advice where I clashed with. Uh, the, Hillary Clinton, Clinton especially right? and, and Bernie Nussbaum and the president was in the middle and that's why you know, we were having these debates. Um, one was this whole issue of Whitewater people don't even know what it's about anymore because it was mm-hmm. a losing real estate investment in of about, of about $20,000, $30,000 in Arkansas back in the 1970s now somehow this had become fodder for the special counsel, but there had already been one special counsel who had looked at it and saw that there was nothing wrong and I made the argument, this was even before that, I guess, that whatever papers you have, give them to the press. Because they're going to get them. They're going to get them eventually anyway. Let them write the stories, and then we can move on. They didn't do that, and that's what led to the first special counsel.
2: Let me ask you a question about this uh, as you watch this last campaign and the way Hillary Clinton dealt with some of her issues, uh, the speeches that she gave that she didn't disclose, the the sort of slow-rolling story of the, the email. Uh, Familiar. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, everybody's got their mix of, of, you know, gifts and flaws. And this is, I think, one thing you, that is pretty consistent in the Clinton history and in Hillary Clinton's history is that, you know, for all her commitment to public service, which is deep and mm-hmm. lifelong uh, and policy smarts, which is also off the charts, um, she has a tough shell and a very protective shell and feels burned uh, by the press and, 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 and burned by the public and just gets into a protective crouch over things that feel personal to her. And you know the the email was one was one example, the speeches is another uh example she feels like she's being held to a different standard so she hunkers down. Um and I would you know I don't think she's necessarily wrong that she's held to a different standard, but that's life. That's politics right. that happens. You know, and you have to deal with the world as it comes sometimes. Yeah. Um but yeah, and you know when it really when I really felt it and it, it turned out ended up not to be the biggest deal in the world, but it was it wasn't helpful. Um, that's Sunday when she fainted.
2: I was very critical of her then. Uh,
1: but and I, I remember I called Nick there Merrill. There was a
2: six-hour gap between her uh, fainting and, and acknowledging that she had pneumonia, essentially. And
1: I, I I called Nick Merrill when he came up with that first statement of, I don't even remember what he said, but I knew. It just didn't... Dehydrate
2: or something on a hot de- day or something. And
1: like I just said, Nick... And I didn't even know anything. This was just purely based on intuition and experience. I said, "Nick, I, I don't think you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't think you know." And sure enough, you know. Yeah, and like what was interesting
2: later, was I had the sense she didn't want to talk about that because she was being attacked by the uh, by Rudy Giuliani and the
1: Trump people about not being fit. Yeah, and she- Giuliani. I mean, wasn't what was what was Trump's word then? It was. Um, it was one of his w- words he was using about whether she was. Oh, you and know, actually, it wasn't one word. It was just yeah. She barely campaigns. Right. She's so that was their
2: that was their meme. But I think you know I tweeted that day that I, I, I'm embarrassed to always start a sentence that way. But I tweeted that day uh, that the issue is stealth, not health, and she exacerbated what was her deepest problem, which was trust. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, it didn't turn out to be the biggest deal, but it sure, it sure. But it was, did, it was it illustrative.
1: But then, you, put yourself. <laughs> and this is where I can, then then can flip it around and say, put yourself in her shoes. She's running against someone who, you know, demonstrably on several different occasions, just says stuff that's flat out not true. You know, I saw thousands of Muslims right uh, uh, cheering on nine. A nine eleven. He's all over the map on policy. He's not releasing his taxes, and, and she's thinking you're hitting me for being secretive.
2: Right, right. But as you say, uh, politics ain't fair, and right. you got to deal with it. As you, but I do. Think, I think there was too much reliance, frankly, on his deficiencies. There was too much of a sense that people would see that and would, you know, clearly uh, in retrospect, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, let, let me just, because I don't want to run out of time here, because uh, I, want, I want to come back to Trump and the media, mm-hmm. but you made this leap uh, after uh, leaving the House, And when I quit my job at the Chicago Tribune, Doug Neeland, who was an editor at the Tribune, I always remember he told me, you know, you'll never be able to come back if you cross this line. But you were a very visible partisan,
1: and you were able to make the leap to well, and I wasn't the first who did that. I mean, um, Tim Russert. Tim Russert had done it, and he worked for Governor Cuomo. Actually, Diane Sawyer. Yes, had who done worked it. for Richard Rich, Nixon? Worked, worked, worked for Richard Nixon. Bill Moyers mm-hmm. had done it. Worked for for Lyndon Johnson. I think generally, what it by the time. I, I came along that was more like you get one move <laughs> mm-hmm. and you don't get to go back right uh and, and forth but when i first left i didn't know for sure this was what i was going to do i came on to abc although now it turns out i've been there 20 years been here 20 years um as an as an analyst as a you know sort of a uh with a, with a point mm-hmm. of view um it was only over time that i i made that a full-time job and and moved on to reporting and anchoring uh but i i knew that i had uh in order to be uh, accepted in this role, had to be sort of transparent um, about it. And I had different rules for myself at different times. When I was a a, a pundit, an analyst, um, I sort of felt the best way that I could be true to my past work and true to the job of being an analyst was to basically uh, say on the air what I would say in a meeting in the White House, which would not necessarily agree with what the president did, but would, you know, sort of be true to the arguments I made mm-hmm. uh, at, at the time. Um, as a, you know, when I started to become a reporter uh, and an anchor, um, I knew that people were skeptical, and I just had to be scrupulous about, Then um, we, we've actually talked about this before, but two things. One uh, being fair to both sides, but also not overcompensating, and ending just to, to look like you're being tougher on the side you used to work to work on, and that was a, that was a balancing act for a long time. But I always knew it was going to be up to the viewers uh, and the people I was covering to determine whether or not I was doing a fair job.
2: And had it, was it hard for you to sort of shed the 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 mantle of partisanship
1: um and that, you know it, it, you, uh, it you know if over this were time,
2: television that pause would be read as yes, a, yes.
1: <laughs> well it is i was i was seeing it, the honest way to answer it uh it took time yeah and it it definitely it definitely took time um now one of the things that you know that that sort of ended up complicating it. That was kind of a fraught time. While this is happening, you know, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing blows up. This is all after I left the White House. and um,
2: Yeah, it's tough to comment on that.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, uh, this goes back to the point I was trying to make about what I I felt like the way to be true to myself was to make the arguments I would have been making inside. And the truth was that you know, I was appalled by this. You know, when I went to, to work for for Bill Clinton in in nineteen uh, ninety one, ninety two, he had already part of the reason he didn't run in nineteen eighty eight. People thought was because of these questions about his his personal uh, behavior, and I was defending him against charges that I was told were untrue for for years. Um, but the whole implicit and to some degree explicit. Bar, uh, Bargain was um, or contract was, you know, you're going to put people out to defend you on this, but that means you're not going to, you know, make the problem worse. Uh, you know, you know, you're in the White House now, mm-hmm. um, and to me, that was just, you know, should he have been impeached for it? No, but uh, and you know, uh, incredibly reckless and irresponsible and selfish act, and that's the that's what I said as 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 a commentator and Pro-
2: probably and, wasn't well received at the white house probably <laughs> yeah. did you hear from them uh, or others
1: others but you know it was a f- pretty fraught time i heard from a lot of different people on uh,
2: <laughs> you did get into a jam a couple of years ago you're an incredibly generous person my own uh you know a foundation i'm very close to you, you you've been a supporter of and uh, you were support you you gave some contributions to the, the Clinton, Clinton Foundation, Foundation yeah. uh, and you've acknowledged that probably the optics of that probably were not yeah. good, even if the intentions were.
1: I mean, I, I have I, I don't think there was anything. I, I think it's a good charity, and I'm glad I supported it in that respect. But it was dumb, given the role I had. I would say that when I was making these contributions, this was a time when you know Mitt Romney was chairing the Clinton Initiative. It became something. Uh, Different. It looked different in the in the in the middle of the campaign, and I should have had, even though I did disclose it, I should have had more disclosures than mm-hmm. I had. And I I certainly uh, cop to that, um, but
2: it, may have cost you a presidential debate.
1: Yes, it may have. Well, it definitely cost me a Republican debate.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh well, wow. that's life. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Um, I just want to ask
2: you one question about your dual-hatted role. I mean, you really wear three hats at ABC. Three, as, yeah. uh, you know, as their sort of chief anchor and uh, on Good Morning America and, and the Sunday show. Um, the this, the Good Morning America piece, which is an incredible franchise for ABC, uh, you know, you, you, you people know you as the guy on Sunday who's challenging policymakers on some r- people do that's the
1: thing yeah know? but uh but then very, no gma is very different yeah um actually I think you were my first interview on gma
2: oh is that my right first,
1: yes you were my first actual interview
2: um but it wasn't on cooking or anything it was no listen <laughs> <laughs> um
1: yeah it was a different
2: uh, i mean how do you uh, how how have you embraced that role
1: uh, and, and what's the upside of it? I mean, obviously, the upside... That you, well, the upside, it turns out, I mean, uh, again, when I, I I sort of felt... I, I actually said no to the job three times. Um, but it, the more I said no, the more it became clear to me that um, I was putting a, a pretty hard ceiling on my career if I said no. Yeah, you can say no. Yeah. But... You ain't going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. I I would never be the chief anchor. I would never be doing the the anchoring election night, anything like that. If if I said no, this was they needed. Mm -hmm. Um, Now,
2: how long have you been there?
1: Long time now, seven years. Yeah. Um, What's
2: the what? What you look at the television news numbers? Obviously, there are a lot more outlets now, but they're very. They're, 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 it's not encouraging in terms of the ch- trajectory. Morning television may be in better shape than. More,
1: actually, morning and Sunday are in yeah. better shape than anything yeah. else. So good Sunday, for you. Sunday is getting, we're getting the same numbers, in some cases better than we were getting eight, ten years ago. Um, I mean, both Obama and, I, you know, it was actually the, the tougher time was uh, the early 2000s. Obama brought back a lot of interest in. Uh, in politics. And Trump is in, and Trump has done the same. Like a shiny object, yeah. Trump has done the well, same. Let me ask thing. you
2: one question on that. Um, do you think Trump obviously has a real instinct for self promotion and, and understands television? In a, in a yes and no, but yeah. But he well certainly the cable. Uh, oh, he, you know, he, under, he, he, he understands, understands that if media you light yourself on yes. fire, yeah. that people are going to turn their cameras on, and he lit had lit himself on fire. Did he game? Game television news. Uh, well, this the gets campaign. back
1: to something we were talking. But this goes back to the Hillary conversation as well. He clearly uh, gamed cable. Well, no, and any game. I could argue he gamed all of us. I mean, obviously, he thought a lot about this. And um, I mean, he'd call into he your got, Sunday
2: shows. Everybody let him do that. Right. Nobody else really got to do
1: that. Now, he, actually, no one else actually ever thought about that stuff. Problem. Well, that's my point. <laughs> so that—that's the way that he gamed it. But you know, I—I'm I, of two minds of this because a lot of the people who would complain about how much coverage we were giving him. We—we'd invite them on every day. They right. wouldn't come on. Right. I mean, it, he had a because, and this goes back to when I like look at my own role in this, and you know, did we do something wrong? Were we not fair? Um, did we give him too much coverage? I look at every interview I did. They were tough interviews, mm-hmm. and uh, again, these were interviews that, if other people gave the answers, he gave, and not just to me, but to others as well. In a, nor- in, a, in a different world, they were interviews and answers that politicians just didn't survive. You know, in you know whether it's you know attacking John McCain for his time as a prisoner yeah. of war when you didn't go. How to many Biden times
2: up- during that campaign did did the, did the political intelligentsia say? Uh, that's it. He's never going to survive this.
1: Well, I remember one big interview I did was after their convention. I flew out to Colorado, and that was the interview where he, um, after it was after the Dem- Democratic convention, where he attacked uh, Kazir Khan and his wife. And I remember walking out of the interview, and Trump, now President Trump, he was very mad at me, um, and he was, you know, really as angry as I've ever seen him, and he was yelling at me. But it was about a different part of the interview. It was about uh, the questions I had been asking him about Putin, which, again, on their own would have been... He seems
2: testy on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Where do you think this is all going? I mean, coverage of the presidency and the presidency itself. You, you've got a perspective on both well, those Well, I things. would
1: think on the, having worked in a White House that was under the thumb of the special counsel for several years... They have no idea. Once the special counsel starts, and certainly Ken Starr did remember, he was appointed uh, two years before uh, Monica Lewinsky came into the White House. That's what ended up being what Bill Clinton got impeached over. Yeah. Yeah. social councils can go in any direction they want.
2: I think they have some idea, which is why he seems to be laying the predicate for, or at least Newt Gingrich and others are laying the predicate for somehow removing Mueller, which seems like a cataclysmic decision if they make it.
1: You you would think, um, having just read a book I would recommend to all of your uh, uh, listeners, a fantastic new biography of uh, Richard Nixon by John Farrell. Jack Farrell. Farrell. It's and it brings you back to the, the 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 Watergate times and the Saturday night massacre um i this go, i can't imagine a president surviving a move like that but he's defied mm-hmm. every but in this case perhaps it's different if, if you try to think this one through um the deputy attorney general is now in charge of Mueller, who would have to do it, Rod Rosenstein is not going to fire Robert Mueller, so he's going that, to resign.
2: Yeah, no, um, that's why this is Saturday Night Mass- Massacre territory. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, squared or cubed. No, I, I think can't. that's break glass time. If yeah. they, if they do that, I uh, listen. We could talk about this, <laughs> and I suspect we will be talking about this quite a bit. I just want to say the reason why you have a faithful audience is that you bring the passion of someone who has been a practitioner and who understands the process uh,
1: and who has reverence for it. I do have reverence for it. I mean, I, that's what you were saying about my time in the White House is, you know, it was a mixed experience. That's true. And maybe this is looking back with rose-colored glasses. Peak professional experience mm-hmm. of my life. How could it not be? I mean, to have that kind of privilege, to have that kind of chance... Uh, to work on uh, what you care about at the highest level in a way that matters every single day um, is is once in a lifetime. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
2: Well, that comes shining through in your coverage and in your conversations each uh, Sunday and during the week. And I appreciate you, and I appreciate being with you This today. was fun. Thank you.
1: Okay. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher,
0: or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.